Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're beginning a new series. It's a new year. Why not start a new series? And so this morning we're going to start, Lord willing, a a several-month-long series through this small letter from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. And, And for me, this is a first, although I've been preaching, I would say, regularly over over the past six years or so, so we have a, a group of people from, from the church that I previously served at. They heard me when, when I was first learning how to preach. Uh, but, but so about six years I've been preaching on a regular basis, but I've never preached through one of Paul's letters. Um, I, I never have. And so I'm excited um, to begin this series, to, to study through this book together. And so I hope um, one of my hopes as we, as we begin is that you will read and study alongside uh, with me. So week after week, I, I, my prayer is that you will have at least looked at the passage in the week prior. Maybe you've read and studied so that you come with anticipation, with questions, um, looking at the, the verses together. Uh, and, and my hope is that as, as we do study, as we do look at Paul's letters, at Paul's letters through, through this book, through these verses through these words, as we study them, my my prayer is that we will be transformed. And so my prayer for us, in fact, on on Thursday afternoon in my office, I I prayed this for, I prayed these things for me and for our church. I prayed that that we would know the Lord through this study. I prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. I prayed that we would know the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. I prayed that we would know the glorious inheritance that awaits all those who trust in the Lord. I pray that that you and I would be changed. I mean, that's my prayer for us as we, as we go through this. My, my prayer is that we would grow in our love for Christ, that, that we'd be, be compelled to love Jesus more as a result of this. My prayer is that we would be compelled to love one another more as we go through this book together. I pray that our church would be changed, that, that our one bodiness, our unity, would be encouraged by this study. Th- those are the things that I prayed for us. And I know those are big prayers, Right? Those are some pretty big prayers, but I prayed them knowing that God is able to do all of these things and more. And I prayed them knowing that, that his word, that this letter, this little letter through the Ephesians is able to do all of these things and more. And as I prayed these things, I prayed them quite encouraged because I prayed them knowing that, that a sufficient God who's given us a sufficient word is pleased to use and pleased only to use an insufficient messenger. And that's encouraging for me. But I am not sufficient on my own, especially when you consider the enormous impact and impression that this small letter has made throughout the history of the church. I mean, it'd be easy for me to be overwhelmed at the task that lays ahead of me. I mean, I I read quotes like this. A, a A poet named Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote regarding Ephesians, it is one of the divinest compositions it embraces every doctrine of Christianity. I read one man, Raymond Brown, once stated, among Pauline writings, only Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. Or New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says, quote, the letter to the Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written. Period. Ever. And so, these quotations, they go on and on and on, and as I read those, and, and then as I read through the book of Ephesians itself, and I see that, that they're all valid claims. All these quotes, they, they testify accurately to what we have in the book of Ephesians, and as I read those, 
and I recognize the task before me, I'm not crushed because I'm not sufficient in and of myself. I can't do justice to this letter. I just, I can't. Which is one of the most freeing realizations that I or any preacher can come to. I can't do, I can't do it on my own. But I, I, I'm excited about this and I'm anticipating this because as long as the Lord has me here in this position as the pastor of this church, teaching from this pulpit, I am sufficient. And it's because he makes me sufficient. And so my sufficiency doesn't come from myself but from him. And so with excitement, with confidence, with expectation, we're going to work through this letter. We're going to begin today. So let me, let me lay out the outline for us that we're going to be working through. Today's going to be a, a bit ad, abnormal because the beginning of a letter, we're going to start with, with the setting of Ephesians, kind of some background material of the book itself. And then we'll, we'll, we'll briefly look at a few of the major themes that, that are running through Ephesians. We won't, we won't spend much time there because my hope is that as we go through, you, you see the themes yourselves. So you, don't have to me, you don't have to have me tell you, you, you see them as we study. And then finally, we will look at the first two verses. So, so that's, our, that's our, our game plan for this morning. So, so as we begin, let me, let me pray for our time together. Father, I pray that, that as we, at, at some point in the future, look back on this study of Ephesians, I pray that I would be able to, that we as a church would be able to look back on this study and rejoice that you changed us through your word. We confess that we're in need of renovation, we're in need of transforma- transformation, we're, we're in need of your divine aid. We're, we're in need of the wonder-working power that only you can provide in our lives. And, and so we confess that if you don't work supernaturally through these sermons, through these messages, if you don't work, we won't change. And so I pray, we pray that you would change us to become more like your son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So first, the setting, the background of the city of Ephesus. So, so let's look at the city itself. And I even have some pictures in our PowerPoint this morning. So, so, so maybe you'll, you'll be excited. Well, Ephesus, the, the ancient city, was, was called the mother city of Asia because of its power and its influence. So it's located, you see that, that, that picture there? It's located on the western coast of, of modern-day Turkey. It was a major port city for, for all of, of western Asia. And so, so you had ships that, that, that port came into port there in Ephesus, but you also had roads from, from, from the east and the north and the south all passing through converging in Ephesus. Its population was guessed to be anywhere between 200 and 250,000. Uh, it was the third largest Roman city. The only larger were that of Rome itself and Alexandria. So it's a, a large, major metropolitan area. Ephesus was a religiously pluralistic society, which was the norm for cities under the, the rule of the Romans. Uh, but, but in Ephesus, there was one god who was more prominent than every other deity, and that was the goddess Artemis. So, so maybe you've heard of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. So we have a picture of that. It, it's obviously a, a, an artist rendering, but it was a huge, a massive temple. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens, which it's a well-known ancient figure or, or building structure. Well, this was, was much larger. And, and what this temple did, it was in Ephesus, and it represented the unique relationship between the city and this, 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 this god, Artemis. In fact, there was no other Greco-Roman metropolis in the empire whose body, soul, and spirit could so belong to a particular deity as did Ephesus to her patron goddess 
Artemis. So, so Ephesus and Artemis, they, they, they were two peas in a pod. They were, they were connected. And th- this shouldn't be a surprise to you because we learn about this relationship in Acts 19. So in the book of Acts, Paul, he's, he's living there in Ephesus. He upsets a silversmith named Demetrius. And so we learn Demetrius, he makes idols for Artemis. Some say they're probably silver, silver, silver replicas of that temple. But, but Demetrius makes his living from the, the popularity of this god. And when Paul and his followers begin spreading the gospel and people start forsaking their idols, that's, that's bad for idol-making business. And so Demetrius and his, his fellow silversmiths, they start a riot they don't want to lose their money. They want people to want Artemis. They don't want to, to fors- people to forsake Artemis and worship the one true living God. So they, so they don't want to lose their money. But interestingly enough, what Demetrius says there in Acts 19, he says that if Paul isn't stopped, quote, the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be disposed from her magnificence. And so his concern is that Artemis, she holds a, a prominent place in the culture there in Ephesus. And of course, when Demetrius riles up the crowd and there's writing, there's that, that, great, that great phrase, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, where they, they chant it for two hours, it says. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. I mean, the city of Ephesus loved Artemis. I, I don't know if they're popular now, but, but I remember when I was growing up, the, the shirts I Heart NY were popular, right? They probably had t-shirts I Heart Artemis. Right? They, their city was wrapped up with the goddess Artemis. And so she, she, she was the, the main prominent deity. There, there, there are dozens of others. Um, it, was, it was a polytheistic city, which tells us, explains, helps explain why the, the religiously exclusive claims of the gospel, they don't go over so well. It, it shocks people. Um, but, but that's the city of Ephesus. Um, one last thing, in addition to the religious landscape of, of the worship of, of these false gods, uh, Ephesus, the landscape was laden with magic and sorcery. So, so there's all these, these sorcerers and magicians. And I won't go into detail here, but there in Acts 19, you can read, um, there, there's this, this, this Jewish priest who has seven sons, and, and they're going around casting out demons, right? And so there's this whole, the, the story ends up with them running naked from the house, being overcome by this demon because they were exercising power they knew nothing about. Um, but, but my point is simply to say that spiritual warfare was a reality, for those living in Ephesus. And, and that'll become perfectly clear at the end of the letter, specifically chapter 6, when Paul talks about we wage war not against physical, it's not the Romans who are our biggest enemy, rather it's the, the spiritual principalities and powers that we are to wage war against. And so that's, that's, that, that's the city. Uh, in summary, what we'll, second notice, uh, I'll briefly mention Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So Paul's relationship with the Christians at Ephesus was well attested to also there in the book of Acts. And so it's his second missionary journey. And all this, you read through the book of Acts, you'll, you'll learn all about his journeys. But on his second missionary journey, him, along with this couple named Aquila and Priscilla, who he had met in Corinth, they, they stop in Ephesus briefly. So as Paul goes into one of the synagogues, he reasons with them and he goes to leave and they say, no, no, stay, come back. He says, I can't, but Lord willing, I'll come back again. So he leaves. That's one of his his first interaction with Ephesus, his first um, time there, he, he goes on to Jerusalem from there. Um, and then his second missionary journey, or his third, sorry, his third missionary journey is when he goes back to Ephesus. And so that's in, in Acts 19. On his third missionary journey, he goes back, and this time he settles in, he lives, he ministers there in Ephesus for three years. 
And so as a result of his bold speaking and reasoning in his ministry, there are many Jews and Greeks, all residents, Acts says, in Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul sets up his camp there as a missionary, as a church planner, and he just he gives his life to those in Ephesus, and, and many churches are started, and God was doing extraordinary things through the ministry of Paul there in Ephesus. Paul loved the city, so he spent his time there. He poured out his life, and in a very moving scene there in Acts 20, Paul is on his way back to, to Jerusalem, and he knows, when I get back to Jerusalem, this time I'm going straight to Rome, and I'm never going to see any of them ever again. Right? So that's his final journey. He knows I'm going to Rome. He, calls the, he stops in a, in a place called Miletus, which is just a few um, miles south of Ephesus. He, he stops in Miletus. He says, hey, all you leaders of the, the church at the Ephesians, come. I want, I want to talk to you. And so he meets with him in this, this, this moving scene where Paul is just this passionate plea about his ministry. I, I didn't withhold anything from you. I'm not guilty. I gave myself for you. And you can tell Paul is, is, is concerned for his people. And he's, he's encouraging these, these elders at, at Ephesus to remain faithful and to follow his example. And then with much weeping on the part of all, he departs from Ephesus never to see them again. And so that was his, his face-to-face interaction with the Ephesians. So he lived there. He ministered there. He, he knew the people well. Well, he does go back to Jerusalem. And remember, he goes to Jerusalem. His, his whole aim is to, is to proclaim the gospel to Caesar in Rome. And so he gets arrested in Jerusalem. He goes back knowing he's going to be arrested. He's arrested. He's in prison. And he keeps appealing. I'm a Roman citizen. He can't do this. And, and they send him to higher powers and higher powers. And so finally, he makes his way to Rome where he, the book of Acts ends with him waiting to appear before the highest power. And, and there, in Rome, he's imprisoned. And it's from his imprisonment in Rome that he then writes back to the Ephesians. Okay, so, so that's, his, that's his interaction. That's where this letter comes from. Paul is in prison writing to the, the church that he had spent so much time with. So, so Ephesians is, is sometimes part of what's a group of letters called the prison epistles, so while Paul is in Rome, he can't go anywhere. He's under house arrest or he's in prison. And so he just starts writing letters to all the churches that he had planted, all the people he had, he, had, he had spent time with. So Philippians and Colossians and Philemon are all included in the, the prison epistles with Ephesians. And so it's believed Paul wrote this near the end of his imprisonment in A.D. 62. If you want a date, there's your date. Last thing I'll say um, in terms of, of the background is that this letter, as you read it, one thing that stands out is, is, it is it's a situational letter. So he writes it to the Ephesians, but the context of the church at Ephesus, it's not, it's not really clear what's going on. There's not, there's not a problem or an issue. So in Galatians, they're, they're forsaking the gospel. He says, I've got to write them. Or at Corinth, they, they've written him a letter asking all kinds of questions. He says, okay, I'm going to answer all your questions. Or in, in Colossians, there's these false teachers, and, and there, there's this, this false teaching they have to, to address. Well, in, in the letter to the Ephesians, it's not clear what prompts the letter. There's no clear conflict situation or glaring problem that Paul says, I've got to write to them and address this problem. We don't know of false teachers or specific issues within the church that warranted a letter, which is why it's believed, and I agree, that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians in order to establish and ground them in the gospel. I mean, that's his point. He wants them to be established in in the gospel that he's taught them, that they've believed. But he also wrote it with the expectation that after they read it, it will be circulated around the other churches in the region, in in the, 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 the area there. And so it's a situational letter that was expected to be circulatory. So he he expects it to be passed from church to church. That's why it's very broad. There's big, major themes addressed. 
Well, that's, that's all I'll say. So, so second, major themes. So this is brief. Major themes of Ephesians. Hopefully, as I said, the themes will emerge as we study through. But, but the, the two things that I'll mention in terms of themes, the first theme, the major theme, is that the book of Ephesians is, is about the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Throughout this letter, we're going to see that in Christ, in the person and work of Jesus, God the Father has brought all things together. All, all the, the heavens and the earth, all things have been brought together. All things have been united in Christ, under Christ, which is simply to say that the whole plan of God in the history of the entire universe is to unite all things together under the rule and authority of Christ. And that, so that's what he's saying in the, the letter to the Ephesians, that, that in Christ all these things have been realized. And so this supremacy of Christ, this rule and authority, this lordship, if you will, of Jesus is then worked out in specific ways through the letter. So, so at, at next week, chapter 1, Paul shows us the supremacy of Jesus in salvation. So he's going he's gonna to write a really long sentence about, about the grace of God in our salvation, that Jesus in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Then he shows how the supremacy of Christ affects or helps us think about how the church is ordered. Specifically, he's going to focus on the unity of the church. We have Jews and Gentiles, people of different races who are now one in Christ. It's because in one body God has reconciled Jew and, and Gentile. He's going to show how the, the supremacy of Christ affects how Christians live. So there's a lot of ethical teachings here. Husbands, here's how you're supposed to live. Kids, here's how you're supposed to live. Christians, here's how you're supposed to live. And it's all because as members of Christ's body, here's how we live lives under the rule or the authority of Jesus. And then finally, he's going to show how the supremacy of Christ affects spiritual warfare. And he's going to argue that all, all spiritual principalities, powers, and authorities should be seen as underneath, subject to Jesus. Because Jesus is supreme over all things, including the powers at work, the evil powers. And so all these areas, as, as Paul says, here's Christ is, Christ is over all and all of these, these things that he goes through, they're all really relevant for us here and now. And so, so all these things, the supremacy of Christ in all these areas are directly applicable to us, which is, leads to the second thing, the last theme I'll mention, is that the book, the letter to the Ephesians, is a letter about Christian living. That's a major theme. How do you live as a Christian? That's, that's a major theme of this letter. This letter summarizes what it means to be a Christian better than any other book of the Bible. It clarifies the heart of the Christian faith. It explores the dynamics of a personal relationship with Christ. It sets forth God's overall plan for the church, and it draws out the implications of what it means to be a Christian. And so this book, it's very applicable. There's not much work to do in terms of interpretation. We don't have to read in, in all, these, all these differences and, and these divides. This is a very applicable book. This letter is the most, one, one author wrote, this letter is the most contemporary book of the Bible. Apart from a few terms, it could have been written to a modern church. So, so, so it's going to be, it's going to be really easy for us to be convicted and challenged by this book, because we all have areas where we need to grow in our Christian life. And so I hope that we do learn how to live as better Christians. Well, let's, let's look at the, the text itself. So we're just going to look at two verses, so, so don't, don't be afraid. Let, let's look at um, Ephesians 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, then we'll, then we'll look briefly at those. So 
Ephesians 1, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, so follow along as I read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the salutation, the opening. So, so let's look at this introduction. I just want to point you to three things from these two verses. And that math doesn't really work. Three things from two verses, but, but you'll, you'll follow me. And so we're going to look at the, the sender, right? Who, who's the author who's sending this letter? We're going to look at the recipients. Who's he sending it to? And then what does he say to him? What's the greeting that he gives? And so as we begin, we have to recognize that, that this letter, so, so this letter, as it begins, it's very common, it's very common in that hundreds of letters have been found that can be dated around this time, and they all follow a really ordinary, normal, predictable pattern. Like the greeting, like I'm the author, and I'm writing to you, and here's my greeting to you. It's, it's a normal letter. Almost, Paul, all, almost all of Paul's letters begin this way. It, it, is, it is how they wrote and communicated out at that time. And so it's normal, but... As we read the normal beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we quickly realize there's not much else that is common or ordinary about this letter. And so it's a normal means, but it's not an ordinary or normal letter. So look first at the sender. Who's the one writing this? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is Paul. And at the outset, he's establishing his credentials. He's enhancing his authority and respect among the readers. As Paul's saying here at the outset, I I want you to know who I am. I want to make perfectly clear what kind of letter this is. I'm one who's been sent by Jesus Christ himself. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so by writing, Paul's not merely maintaining a relationship with his recipients. It's not like a pen pal. Hey, write back if you get a chance. He's saying, I have authority. And it's not any authority. It's not Roman authority. It is a divine authority. I've been sent by God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so Paul is writing in a way that no one today could ever write. He was uniquely equipped and anointed by God to teach and instruct the church. And so he's writing for their instruction as one with authority. His authority doesn't come from the fact that he's just this veteran missionary. Oh yeah, he, he has a few good things to say. We, bet, we better listen to him. That's, that's not the basis of his authority. It's not just because Paul's the old guy in the room that everyone says, oh yeah, I've heard stories about him, I better listen. That's not the basis of his authority. He's sent as a commissioned apostle of Jesus Christ. He'd been chosen, authorized, and sent out. And this letter is, is from a man whose authority exceeds far beyond what he could ever himself have or gain. Notice from verse 1, he's commissioned by the will of God, an apostle by the will of God. He, he's, not, he's not there by his own doing, his own work, his own achievements, his life experience. This is God and God alone who's appointed him. Which means, and, and here's the point for us, if he was an apostle because of the will of God, meaning if God appointed him as his own messenger, apostle, means that what he wrote must be seen as communication not primarily from Paul, but from God himself. It's important to understand here at the outset that what we have is not ultimately a letter from Paul to the Ephesians. Yes, it's what we have, but at the end of the day, that's not all that we have. What we have here is a letter from God to his people. 
And so this letter is inspired, God-breathed, just like the rest of Scripture. And so so the, the point of application here at the outset is, is to simply ask ourselves the question, how do I receive the Word? How do I receive the Word? How do I read the Word? That's a question we should ask. If Paul's writing as one sent by God, writing the, the communications of God, from God to his people, how do we receive it? I mean, it should go without saying, but, but when you or I receive communication from someone or some organization of perceived authority, right, we open the letter. There's this, this sense of urgency, maybe fear, depending on what you've done wrong. Right? Well, what do they want from me? So, so think about the city of Hampton. Right? You get a, 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 a note from the treasurer's office or something else, or, or the, the Elizabeth, Liddy, Elizabeth City Transit Authority. You go through the tolls, the DMV, the IRS, right? Uh, escalated authority, right? <laughs> it's not good to hear from the IRS. Or, or what, what if the White House sent you something? Right? In all of these cases, the authority of, of the organization, the institution, or the individual should affect how we receive that communication. I mean, think about it this way. The authority of the sender is why I open mail sent to me by Nationwide differently than I open the mail sent to me by Geico or Allstate. Why? Nationwide is my insurance company, right? We have an account with them. We owe them money every single month. They have a right to demand something from us, right? Whereas all these other companies, I don't, I don't owe them a thing, they have nothing on me. No matter how adamantly they tell me what is inside is very important, at the end of the day, I don't care what they have to say. I mean, they have no authority over me. I don't owe them anything. And my point is simply to say that, that when we come to Scripture, when we come to this letter, this book, to the Ephesians, we aren't just reading random insurance mailings. We aren't reading, we are reading communication from God Himself that has come through His very own appointed apostles and prophets. We are hearing from God. And God has a right to demand something from us. God, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you owe, I owe our total allegiance to him. He has the right to make demands on me. So I don't read this and say, okay, yeah, I'll take that out. I won't take that. No, I say I take it all because I have no choice. Because it's a matter of authority and mine doesn't compare to that of sender. And so we have to labor t- to come to the word cognizant of the fact that it's not just another book to be read. Well, then second, notice the recipients. The recipients, the, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to specific people in Ephesus. He's writing to saints. Just like all his other letters, he makes specific assumptions about his readers. He's, he's writing to them as Christians. And so, so things that are written here, if a non-Christian reads them, they may be offended. It's not meant for them. And so it's not right for us to, to place things and commands written here to Christians on non-Christians. It's written to Christians, not non-Christians. He's writing to the saints in Ephesus, the holy ones. Now, that's what saint means, the, the holy ones. This is Old Testament language. The holy ones, the God had set them apart. They weren't holy primarily because their lives were holy. They weren't holy because their lives were perfect. If you think that being a Christian, being a saint, means that, that I have my life together, right? That, that's not Christianity. I mean, that, that's not Christianity. Christianity is I don't have it together, but I'm set apart from by God. My salvation, my blessings, my grace, they're all because of what God has done to me and for me, not what I've done for God. 
And so he's writing to the saints in Ephesus, those who have been set apart. We're going to see next week all that God has done for the Christian in their salvation. But he's writing to the saints. And so he's saying, just as I've been appointed as an apostle, you've been appointed. You're separate. You've been, you've been set apart by God himself as Christians who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Every, tra- every translation I looked at had that, that end of verse 1 as the, the faithful ones, the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. But, but the point that Paul is making, it's not that, okay, I'm writing to the Christians and the, the subcategory of Christians are the faithful Christians. He's not doing that. That's what the faithful tends to, to communicate. That's not Paul's point. He's not distinguishing between, okay, here's saints, here's one category of saints. No, he's, he's saying again what he said here. The saints, a.k.a. those who have faith, those who are, are, are Christians, those who are faithful, those who believe in Christ Jesus. And, and this is a proper description of a saint, right? What makes a saint, what makes a Christian? It's not that I, I live a good life or a perfect life. What makes a Christian is that my faith is in Jesus Christ. And so he's writing to the saints who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, the greeting, he says, Paul, an apostle, Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And here's the greeting, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common, common phrase, common greeting. In fact, seven of Paul's other letters have this exact phrasing. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And while Paul uses it often, we'll see that it is especially appropriate to begin this letter. The letter to the Ephesians, the two themes, grace and peace, are going to play important roles in the book to come. I mean, especially next week, we're going to see God's grace that's been lavished upon us, that's led to our salvation. And so grace is going to be a a major key that's hit throughout this letter. And peace, we're going to see, is going to play a major role. Both grace and peace are significant for Paul in the letter to the Ephesians because both describe God's initial salvation. You're saved by grace and peace. Peace is a result, but, but your initial salvation, you get grace and peace. And both describe God's continuing work. You, you continue by grace and peace. And so it's from start to finish through this book and through the Christian life. And so with that, Paul commences his letter. And after verse 2 into verses 3 through 10, he dives into an unusually long Greek sentence. 202 words to be exact. So verses 3 through 10, it, it's one long eulogy or praise or or blessing, where, where he, after the introduction, he immediately goes in verses 3 through 10 to that. And it's packed full of truth for us. And, and Lord willing, we will be turning to that next week. But, but, but let's, let's pray as we close um, this morning.